Luke chapter 9, verse 18. And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answered, saying, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter, answering, said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. You may be seated. The title of the sermon I'd like to share with you this morning is Dynamic Discipleship. I'd like to look at the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? And I'm planning to use a PowerPoint, and I think the battery just went dead in my clicker, so just give me a minute here. I'll have to uh, advance manually. Uh, It looks like I lost connection. I had it this morning. I'm not sure if something happened in the sound room. It looks like a projector run off. Okay, well, in the meantime, I'm going to start with an illustration, and I'm going to need some helpers. So I'd like to ask some helpers to come up here. I'd like everybody that's in third grade to come up here to the front. All the third graders, come up to the front, please. And it won't hurt, I promise. You can just stand here in a row, right here on the step, that's good. See how many we get. One, two... Three, four, five, six. Okay, I wonder how many second graders we have. I need a total of 12 people. So um, I'd like some second graders to come up. Six, Six more people. If you're in second grade, you can come up. One, two, three, four. Okay, I'll need two more people. How about two fourth graders? Okay, we've got one. Okay, two. Thank you. You can stand over here.
Now, I'm going to uh, talk about life a little bit this morning, and I wonder if you young people can tell me some things that life consists of. What are some things that you do in life? What are some things that take your time? Do you go to school? How many of you go to school? Okay, so that's one thing you do. What else do you do? You do chores. Okay, well, that's good. It's good you do chores. What else do you do? You read. Okay, well, that, that's good. Yeah, thank you. So, this container that I have here represents your life. And life is full of many different things. I'm going to give each of you a paper, and this paper represents some things that you do in life. So you can just hold that paper. So now, I'm going to name some things that your life consists of, and if you have that thing on your paper, when I call out your thing, you may come and pick something out of this bucket. There's, there's some cookies in here, okay? So you can pick up a cookie and take it with you. So who has the paper that says school? Okay, so you, your life consists of school. Thank you. You may take the paper and you may take that and go back to your seat. Uh, what about eating? How many of you eat? Do you eat? Whose paper says eat? Yours does. Well, I'll give you a cookie to eat, okay? There you go. Uh, somebody said chores. So who has a paper that says work? Do you like to work? You don't like to work. Okay. But it's still part of your life, right? Okay. Thank you. Well... We're also, um, we think about our future. That's really what school is. It helps to prepare you for your future. Whose paper says future? Okay, you may take a cookie. What about friends? You all have friends? Yeah, you like spend time with your friends? Okay. There you go. You can take that along with you. What about hobbies, recreation? What, what's one of your hobbies? What's something you like to do? Okay, rollerblading. You can have a cookie there, too. What about clothes? You have school clothes, you have work clothes, you have church clothes. That's all part of your life. What about sleeping? Do you sleep? Do you like to sleep? In the morning you do, right? <laughs> there you go, stuck together. Okay. How about screen time? Do you spend some time looking at the phone or the computer? Sometimes, Sometimes but not too much, right? <laughs> okay, good. Does anybody have any money? Okay. Well, that's part of life. Can't live very well without money, can you? What about um, 
Family. You spend time with your family? Sure you do. Okay. One more. What about God? Is God part of your life? Oh, there's no cookies left. Just a couple crumbs. Well, it looks like you kind of lost out in that, doesn't it? Well, sorry about that. You can take your paper and sit down, okay? God will understand, won't he, if you don't have any time left for him? The moral is, if you don't give God first place in your life, He only gets what's left over, and often it's not very much, sometimes nothing at all, maybe only a few crumbs. At best, it's a crummy deal. So let's not leave God to last. title of the sermon is Dynamic Discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, if I would ask you, if I would ask all the disciples of Jesus Christ to raise your hands... I expect we'd see quite a few hands raised this morning. But I want to think a little, bit, a little more closely about that question. Are we really Christ's disciples? And if so, what does that mean? Well, in short, it means giving him first place in our life, giving him all of our life. And we maybe have this assumption that when we become a Christian— when we accept Christ as our Savior, that auto- automatically makes us his disciple. Is that true or false? Becoming a Christian makes us Christ's disciple. True or false? Well, I propose that there's a difference. That the two may be related, but they are not the same thing. And I would like to differentiate between that a bit this morning. So what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, what is the difference between salvation and discipleship? I'd like to just point out several differences about that. First of all, salvation is believing and accepting. We believe in God. We believe in Christ Jesus. We accept that. Whereas discipleship is learning and doing. It goes beyond believing It's learning. It goes beyond accepting, but there's something that we do. Salvation is believing and accepting what God has done for me. I believe that salvation is found in Jesus Christ, whereas discipleship is learning and doing what God expects of me from that point onward. You see, it's it's a progression. It moves farther. It goes beyond that. Salvation, as I mentioned, is accepting Jesus as my Savior. Discipleship is accepting Jesus as my Lord. And there is a difference. Lord is master. It's someone that you you follow, you obey, you live your life for. Salvation is God's provision for me, whereas discipleship, in turn, is my commitment or my response to God. Salvation is what God has done for me, and discipleship is my response to him. So discipleship should naturally follow salvation, and it will affect every area of my life. It is impossible to be a disciple of Christ without it affecting my life, 
without it making a difference in my life, without, without it being obvious to those around us. It's giving him the privilege of controlling everything in my bucket. It's giving him the privilege of controlling my money, my friendships, my family, my job, my recreation, the house I live in, every aspect of my life. Discipleship is basically putting my whole life into the hands of God. You see, Jesus doesn't want people who merely say the right words. He isn't looking for people who have the answers, simply the words. He wants followers. Jesus wants people who will do more than sit in a pew and say amen. He wants people who will follow him seven days a week, who will take up their cross daily and follow him in the kind of life that he lived. Going to spend most of the time this morning looking at some of the terms of discipleship that are laid out in the text passage here that, that Dave read a little bit. The terms of discipleship, just some of the, the background, some of the basis. And uh, we see the, the first of that is established here in some of the verses uh, 18 through 21 when Jesus had this interaction with the, um, the disciples. He asked them a question. And that question was, who do men say that I am? And then he went on to say, but who do you say that I am? And one of the terms of discipleship is that discipleship is not based on who we are, but it is based on who he is. Because before Jesus got into this thing of discipleship here, he established who he was. He didn't really ask the disciples at this point who they are. That really didn't matter. But he was defining or clarifying who he was. And that is one of the terms of discipleship. You see, we can only meet God on his terms. It's not us setting the terms of discipleship. It's not based on us. It's not about us. It's about him. He is the one who sets the terms. We are not the ones who can set the criteria. Not a single one of us here is good enough to meet God on our terms. Oh, we may try. And if we do try, we're not the first one who tried. Uh, Jacob tried this in, uh, in the book of Genesis. In chapter 28, Jacob was fleeing for his life after he had managed to um, deceive his brother and, and he was running for his life. And he spent the night alone on this journey found a place to sleep, and during that night he had a dream. And in this dream he saw this gateway to heaven, this access to heaven, and he awoke from that dream, and he was, he was awestruck. And yet he was still defining life on his terms. Notice the statement he made to God after that dream, or the statement, the promise he made to God or about God, he says, if God will be with me, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house, then the Lord shall be my God. You notice how this was all about him. 
God, if you'll be with me, if you take care of me, if you give me everything. It wasn't until years later, when Jacob was returning, when he met God again. And in that, in the meantime, he had acquired great wealth. He had bread to eat, raiment to put on, flocks, herds, wives, children, family. But there was a moment when he was separated from all these things, and again, he was alone with God. His physical strength was gone. He had nothing left but to cling on to God. And he was finally, at that point, willing to meet God on his terms. No conditions, nothing. It wasn't, God, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this. It was just simply, God, I need you. God, I'm hanging on to you. I will not let you go. You see, it was no longer about who Jacob was. It was about who God was. And Jacob realized that God was the one that he needed. Discipleship is not about your qualifications. It's not about your accomplishments. It's not about your possessions. It's about God and who he is. And what this means is that we are all equally qualified to be disciples. Because it doesn't matter who you are. God is the same God for each one of us. I'm glad about that. I'm glad that I don't need to be someone with a super lineage going back generations because God is still the same. We meet God on his terms. Well, Jesus was about to give some tough standards here, but he, he specified that we need to meet him on his terms, and Jesus also established his own authority. And like I said, who you are is not that important. Jesus was saying it's who I am that really counts. You know, the disciples, there was uh, quite a bit of variety within the group. There was this tax collector. He had a position in the financial world, and he was probably pleased with that position. And then there were these lowly, smelly fishermen. Quite a contrast, but they could all be disciples. You might be the most successful businessman in Lancaster County. Or you might find yourself flipping burgers at McDonald's during the night shift. It doesn't matter. You can be a disciple either way. Your ancestors could be preachers for four generations. Or you could come off of Skid Row. It doesn't matter. You may be the life of the party. Or you might be forgotten by the party. It doesn't matter. Either way, you can be a disciple because it is who Christ is that counts. Jesus is the way to God. And if you don't understand who Jesus is, you lose your access to God. And that's why Jesus asked a question here. Whom do men say that I am? But whom say ye that I am? What is your understanding of me? People had their opinions. Some say this, some say that. But Peter, in this case, and the disciples needed more than an opinion. They needed a firm conviction that Jesus is the Christ of God. And the basis for genuine, dynamic discipleship is the conviction that Jesus is the Christ and that he and he alone is the one who deserves our ultimate loyalty in life. Well, Jesus also went on to set an example Jesus did not ask the disciples to do something that he wasn't going to do. A disciple is someone who follows. 
Jesus didn't say, well, I just want you to go out there and do this and this and this. But he set them an example. And that example we see in verse 23. He told them what is going to happen to the Son of Man. Jesus does not ask us to do something more difficult than what he himself is willing to do. And that leads us to the next point. Discipleship, we said, number one, is not based on who we are, but on who he is. Number two, discipleship is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, follow me. And that's what discipleship really is. And I understand that during these times when, when someone chose to be a disciple of someone else, they would follow that person down to the detail. They would walk where he walked. They would walk how he walked. They would eat what he ate and slept or sleep where he slept or perhaps not sleep when he did not sleep, something the disciples failed in sometimes. But they just followed in detail. I remember observing some of my nephews years ago, little young nephews, and they looked up to me, and they would try to imitate me in every aspect. I remember sitting at the table, and they would watch what I put on my plate. They would put the same things in their plate. They would try to hold their spoon the way I held my spoon because they just wanted to imitate every detail. That's what a disciple is, someone who fixes their eyes on the master and follows him in every detail. Jesus gave three areas in verse 23 which he expected of his disciples. But before that, in verse 22, Jesus gave three areas of his own life as an example. And I'd like to point out how the three things in verse 23 compare to the three things in verse 22. So in verse 22, you see the master's example. And in verse 23, you see the disciple's requirement, what it means to be a disciple. Jesus said, deny yourself. And this compares to his example of being rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Now, I'd like to point out how this fact of Jesus being rejected was really Jesus denying himself. Jesus told the disciples, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, before the crucifixion, he reminded his disciples, he asked them, don't you realize that I can call down 12 legions of angels and they would be here instantly? Jesus had all power at his disposal. And that power included the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. He had power over them. He could have rejected them. He could have had them removed from their positions in an instant. He could have wiped them from the face of the earth. He could have, but he didn't. Instead, rather than to reject them, he allowed them to reject him. That is self-denial. He made himself of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
That is the supreme example of denying oneself given by our Lord Jesus himself. So what should we do? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, if any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself. Now recognize that you have options. We have options. We don't need to deny ourselves. We may choose to promote ourselves. We may choose to elevate ourselves because we have that possibility. Many of us have the material and financial means to do so. We have the social means to do so. We have the mental wherewithal to elevate ourselves. We can promote ourselves, but not if you wish to experience dynamic discipleship. Jesus said, if any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself. That means a willingness to give up whatever's in our bucket. That means a willingness to give up what we consider to be our rights. I don't need to list what it may be that you need to give up. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Heed him. What is he asking you to deny this morning? So the next condition, Jesus told his disciples, you need to take up your cross. And that compares to what he said he was going to be slain. Now, what's the difference between this and denying yourself? And I look at it as denying yourself is giving up the things that could be yours, all these things of life, whereas taking up the cross is giving up your very life. Denying yourself is sacrificing extras. Taking up the cross is sacrificing your very self. We see this phrase, take up his cross daily. That phrase has become so familiar that it's almost become cliche. We hear it, we read it, and even the cross itself today, we tend to refer to the cross in such a casual manner because it's a symbol that has become so familiar to us that we, we forget the horror attached to the cross. Today, we see the cross anywhere. We probably have a cross hanging somewhere in our home. It may be hung in front of churches or put on steeples. It's on Bibles. In fact, my Bible cover has a cross on the front of it. We see them along the roadside. We see them and we don't think twice about them. But it wasn't always that way. I don't think it was. In the days of the Roman Empire, the cross was a horrifying object. It represented horror, suffering, cruelty, torture. And it meant one thing, death, the most horrible death imaginable. I, I would imagine that in the days of Jesus, displaying a cross in your house would have been considered a horribly morbid and gruesome thing to do. Who would actually hang a cross on the wall of their house? Probably none of us here 
would choose a hangman's noose or a gallows or a guillotine or an electric chair as a symbol to represent our lives because we think of those as horrible things. And yet we see a cross anywhere, all over the place and don't think twice about it. So when Jesus told his disciples that if they want to follow him, they need to take up their cross, I think it got their attention. The cross? The cross? You want us to take up a cross? So does that give you maybe a new understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Christ? Being a disciple of Jesus means a daily surrender of my life, my ideals, dying to self. In chapter 14 of Luke, there's a a different account there. Jesus states it another way. He says, whosoever does not bear his cross cannot be my disciple. That states it very plainly. Do you want to be a disciple? You have one option. Take up the cross, giving yourself totally to him. Notice that this passage is not defining the difference between a a good disciple and a bad disciple. It's simply a test. And if you pass the test, you are a good disciple. And if you fail the test, you're not a disciple. It's not a matter of a poor disciple or a bad disciple. You are not a disciple. Jesus said, if you take up not your cross, you cannot be my disciple. This week, I saw a sign in front of a church. At first, the church was sitting back off the road a little bit, and I just saw the sign along the road, and I just saw the words that said, be an organ donor. And I thought it might be in front of a fire hall or something, but then I read the next line. It said, be an organ donor, give your heart to God. It was in front of a church. Now, normally, organ donors think of what takes place after they die. God doesn't want to wait till after you die. He wants your heart now. This is not an event. It's a lifestyle. Paul said, I die daily. Is this asking too much? Are these words too hard? Well, if so, Jesus has more to say to you. In verse 26, Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words... Of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed. In other words, you cannot be his disciple. If you are ashamed of him, if you are not ashamed of him, you have a lot to look forward to. And notice also what Jesus has to say in in verse 24. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. The only way you can save your life is by giving it up. Do we believe that Jesus spoke the truth? Well, Jesus gives a third condition. Follow me. Verse 23, he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me, which corresponds to verse 22, where Jesus said he himself shall be raised again. When Jesus was slain, That was not the end. We know that he was raised again, and he walked 
upon this earth. And when Jesus walked upon this earth after his resurrection, that was not a private affair. It was not something that was kept in secret. He, he showed himself to hundreds of people. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he showed himself to more than 500 people at one time. He interacted with these people. He ate with them. He spoke with them. He challenged them. He gave them a purpose for life. He gave them a commission. He told them what they need to do in their lives. He gave them a hope for a future. This was all part of his being raised again. A mission in life. And when we take up the cross of Jesus Christ, when we die to ourselves, although it may seem like it's the end, it's not. It's not the end. Jesus said, after we take up the cross, after we decide, uh, die to ourselves, then we are to follow him. And just like for Jesus, this is not a private affair. All the world, when looking at us, should see and recognize there is a man that died. There is a man who died to himself. He is no longer living for himself. He is a new man. And that is the dynamic, the dynamic aspect of discipleship. Following Christ, after you die to yourself, although we're dead, we live, and the whole world sees the difference in our lives. Because we died, we live. Jesus said, for whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. So it's not the experience of a moment. It's not the event of a day. It's a lifestyle. It's how we live. An example of that would be Sir Edmund Hillary. Now, most of you recognize that name as the man who first reached the summit of Mount Everest, along with Tenzing Norgay, and made it back alive. That's what the world knows him for. Well, Sir Edmund Hillary is also a local hero in the country of Nepal, and Nepal is one of the countries that uh, border Mount Everest. He is a hero, well-known across the country, but it is not because of what he did on that day when he reached the peak of Everest and returned alive. It is because of what he did from that day onward. It's because of how he lived. You see, Hillary's accomplishment made him famous, and he became a man with a lot of means, a lot of wealth. And he used that wealth to reach out to the Nepalese people, the people of Nepal. He built schools. He built hospitals and even airports. And he basically invested his life reaching out to the people of Nepal in a humanitarian way. And that is why they know him. It's not because of reaching the point of the mountain, the peak of the mountain. It's because of how he lived afterwards. What does the world see in you? Do they see a lifestyle that is following the example of Christ from day to day? Okay, we spend a lot of time on that point. Discipleship is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Let's move on. Discipleship is following Jesus without reserve. As we read on in this passage, in this chapter, in verse 51, it talks about uh, just some narration here. It talks about Jesus. 
It says, It came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was ahead of him, but he would not be deterred. He would not be stopped. He would not be sidetracked. He would not take a detour. He set his face towards Jerusalem, and that was the course that he was going to take. And if we truly are going to be a disciple of Jesus, we need to have that same steadfast commitment to following him wherever it may be. Halfway is not at all. The last cookie is not what Jesus expects or the few crumbs that are left there. Discipleship is giving Jesus first place in our lives. And that's what we illustrated with this bucket, not leaving him to last, giving him first place in our lives. Now, I'd like to look a little bit, uh, if you have your Bibles open yet, to Luke chapter 9, the end of the chapter, verses 57 to 62. Jesus gives the example of three people who kind of had this casual idea that, yeah, sure, they want to be disciples of Jesus, but it really came down to the test. And we could probably make another point here, the tests of discipleship, but I've included it here under the terms. Discipleship is giving Jesus first place in our lives. Discipleship is not saying, I will follow you as long as I can be first. You understand the contradiction of that statement. It's impossible to follow someone and be first, because if you're first, you're not following them. Discipleship is given Jesus first place in your life. And Jesus encountered three people here, or had encounters with three people. And I think these three people illustrate these three points of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. Encounter number one, verse 57, And it came to pass that as they went in their way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Who was this man? We don't know a lot, but if you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew describes him as a scribe. A certain scribe said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee. Now, if he indeed was a, well, he was a scribe, as Matthew indicates, and the fact that he was a scribe may indicate that he was fairly well known and he may have had a comfortable home. I'm surmising here a little bit, but I'm assuming that he may have had a comfortable home. Jesus reminded him that if you're truly going to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself. Jesus said, foxes have their holes, birds have their nests. I don't even have a permanent place to lay my head. Do you want to follow me? That's what it means. It means denying yourself, giving up your home, giving up whatever. This man was a religious man, but that was not enough. He needed to deny himself. Encounter number two, verse 59, Jesus said unto another, follow me. But this man said, Lord, me first, a contradiction in terms, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. This man was concerned about the wrong funeral. He was concerned about his father's death when really he should have been concerned about his own death and taking up the cross himself. You see, he wasn't taking up his own cross. He was looking at someone else. He was using his father as an excuse 
When my father takes up the cross, then I'll take up my cross. When my father dies, then I will die to myself. We can always find an excuse by pointing our fingers at someone else. Well, if it wouldn't be for so-and-so, I could follow Jesus. Or if that would get his life straightened out, then I could get my life straightened out. Jesus is saying, you can't save your life by hiding behind other people. They'll take care of themselves. Let the dead bury their dead, Jesus said. But you need to be concerned about yourself. If you try to save your life by hiding behind other people, you will end up following them to the grave. Instead, you need to take up your own cross, die to yourself, and experience life. The third encounter, a man come up to Jesus and said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. How can you follow Jesus when your eyes are on someone else? This man said, yeah, I want to follow you, but I, his eyes were on these people back in his house. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to keep your eyes steadfastly on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us to run with patience the race that is set before us, the race of discipleship, persevere, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. This is the only way to follow Jesus by fixing our eyes on him. So we are considering the terms of discipleship. Last week, some of us were at Abby Stoltzfus's wedding, or I guess I should say Abby Zook now. Towards the end of the service, they had a dedication prayer, and the singers sang a song entitled, Two Becoming One. It was a beautiful song. It was a meaningful song. Focused, of course, on marriage. And I appreciated its content in that context, in the context of marriage. But as they were singing, my mind went beyond the marriage of a man and a woman to our relationship with Christ, Jesus. You see, the goal of a disciple is to become one with his master to become like his master, as much like his master as possible. Now I'm going to share with you some of the words of that song that they sang, a beautiful song. And as I do, I want you to think now not about marriage of a man and a woman, but I want you to think about your relationship with Jesus and two, becoming one. And if you would be willing to commit the way that song commits. This song should express the desire of your heart as you become one with Christ. Think of this song as a prayer to Christ. Here's my hand. It's yours to hold. I give myself to you. Here's my heart. Please make it yours. I give my love to you. We are two becoming one. Here I am. Here's all of me. You have all that once was mine. And here's my promise. I'm yours to hold. I'll stay here 
by your side. We are two becoming one. Here's my life. I lay it down. I give up myself for you. And here's my will. I submit to you. I will follow where you lead. We are two becoming one. So this morning as we think about the terms of discipleship, I think we recognize that we may have a long way to go. And again, I ask the question, are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you following him wholeheartedly, fully committed? Well, I'd like to spend a few minutes now. We looked at the terms of discipleship. I'd like to look at the triumph of discipleship. And I'm just going to share some verses from Scripture that talks about what we, as disciples of Christ, have to look forward to. Romans 8, verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, and perhaps what I was preaching this morning, this thing of denying yourself, dying to self, it sounds like a lot of suffering, a lot of sacrifice. Well, perhaps it is, but I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Revelation 2.7, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Beautiful promises. Verse 5, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Revelation 3.12, Him that overcometh will make a pillar in the temple of my God. We're looking at the triumph of discipleship. Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me on my throne. Does that sound like triumph? Matthew 25, 21, the words of Jesus to his faithful disciples. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Well, we looked at the terms. We looked at the triumph. And my conclusion is, God will get what belongs to him. He will get the glory and the honor and the recognition. God will not be shortchanged. Just read the book of Revelation if you have any questions. And the words from Philippians, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is nothing, no one, nothing is going to be held back. So the question I leave with you is, on which side are you? Are you among those who choose to give Jesus their all here on earth? Or are you among those who will be forced to recognize him at the end of time? But one way or the other, he will get what is his. Jamin, I'd like you to come back up here again. God will get what's his. You get a whole pack of cookies. (laughs) Thank you. 
Don't make God wait to the end. Give him what is his now. Give your cookies to Jesus, and he'll give the best to you. Let's kneel for prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your teaching and your holy word. Thank you for your example, the example of your life, and the fact that you don't ask us to do anything that you yourself did not do. Lord, we recognize this morning the, the challenge of, of just simply denying ourselves and taking up our cross, but that is our desire, the desire of our heart, that we can follow you, live a new life that the world may see that we are your disciples. Lord, I just pray that you would guide us and lead us, that your name could be glorified through our lives. According to your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.